Thanks, Chris, for that beautiful song. And that's a good reminder of where we've been in our messages as we started this new series, Crosswalk, Walking with Christ to the Cross. We are, we are finding the cross of Christ to be that which is our glory, that which is, gives us our highest praise as we understand God's great love for us in sending his son to die for us. So two weeks ago, you remember the Apostle Peter was here, if you were here out on that brave, cold day, and he reminded us that the cross wasn't an accident. It was God's design. It was by design that Jesus would come to this earth and travel to Jerusalem and be crucified on a Roman cross to die for our sins, taking our place. It's by design, not an accident. He didn't miss a turn somewhere. And last week, for those of us who weren't here on Saturday night, Uh, Let me just give you a thumbnail sketch of where we were. We followed Jesus then from the Mount of Olives on that Sunday morning down into Jerusalem. uh, A king's welcome, we called it. And people seeing Jesus as the promised king and having seen him as such, they praise him with their hosannas. And that word meant save now. So they, they praised him and they cried out for deliverance. And the crowds got it right when they laid down their, their cloaks and their tunics and their branches and paving the way for this new coming king. But they didn't get it right long enough. Their praises were quickly exchanged for crucify him. Crucify him. So Sunday's hosannas become the chorus of crucify him five days later on Friday. What we saw, though, is there's this unusual amount of detail in those 10 verses about Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, as we call it. Seven verses out of the 10 have to do with a cult. And and you look at it and you go, why all the detail about a donkey? Why all the detail? And the lesson of the details is Jesus is in the details and he's helping us understand that the details of the cult help us understand that he's the king. And all those details have to do with Old Testament prophecies. He's in the details. And because of that, we can have confidence in his word. And because of that, we can know that not only is God in the details of his plan, but he's actually in the details of our lives. So let me give you an example. Some of you wouldn't have been here last week to hear Delana's story, and, but you're here this week. And God was in that little detail so that you could hear her story of grace, of how God's changed her life. The details that are going on in your life right now, and some of them are really lousy details that you just sue trade in for better details. He, he's in the details of our life. And as we understand that, we praise him and we look to him and say, save now, deliver me, deliver me. So as we're following Christ now to the cross, we move from Sunday and today we come to Monday where he cleans house, where he goes into Jerusalem and cleans out his house, the temple. So turn your Bibles and we'll look at the account together. Mark chapter 11. If you forgot your Bible this morning, grab one in the rack in front of you. You find that on page 717. And as you turn there, let me set the setting here. Set the stage for the text. Monday starts a new festival. There's a reason there's a crowd in Jerusalem. They're there to celebrate Passover. Passover is this great feast. It's one of three feasts 
that the Jewish people celebrated and they were commanded to celebrate in Jerusalem. So it's called a pilgrim feast because they travel to Jerusalem to celebrate it. It's a feast that recognized and remembered God's great act of deliverance of the Jewish people a long, long time ago when he rescued them from slavery and oppression in Egypt and brought them out of Egypt. That's what the Passover is all about. And the reason they took that that lamb and sacrificed it is because that's what God commanded his people to do back in Egypt right before the 10th plague, the angel of death. He said, if you want to be spared from this angel of death, your firstborn son spared, then you need to take this one-year-old spotless lamb and you need to sacrifice him. You need to take the blood and apply it to the doorposts of your front house. And then when the angel of death comes, he will see your faith as evidenced by your obedience to my command and he will pass over your house. And that's what they're remembering, God's great act of deliverance. That's what's going on. And the the whole feast of Passover happens within this seven-day feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So here we are, day one of that Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread because God rescued them out in the middle of the night and their bread didn't even have a chance to rise. There's no yeast in it left. And they remember that. God took them out in the middle of the night and rescued them. It's on that very first day that we meet... Jesus here in Jerusalem as he cleans house. So look at verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. This is actually Sunday Sunday night now. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, now we're at Monday, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Now, at first glance you you read this story and you go what in the world is going on with Jesus I mean he's having more than a bad day here he gets up he's hungry he's looking for some figs and he goes to the tree and he doesn't find any and Mark tells us he shouldn't have expected to find any because it wasn't fig season yet but not finding any he curses the tree and we go wow that sounds like a spoiled child who's not getting his way throwing a temper tantrum It's really confusing to see this thing. And in fact, as scholars have wrestled with it, a lot of them just dismiss it outright and say, this this is incredible. This is not a credible account of Christ. And let's just just dismiss it. Let's just kind of cut this one out of our Bible and say, didn't happen, didn't happen. And before you do that, and before you draw conclusions about who this Jesus is and what he's about, let's go back to the context and see if we can get it right 
as we see how Mark unfolds it. So verse 11, look at verse 11. Verse 11 is Sunday night, and what do we see? At the end of the day, he walks in the temple, he looks around, and he leaves. We know from what happens on Monday that what he saw, he didn't like. He didn't like the things that he saw when he looked around. So that's verse 11. So in front of the fig tree, there's, there's Jesus in the temple. Then 12 through 14 is all about the fig tree. First, Jesus is hungry. He goes to this fig tree. What does it tell us about the fig tree? It's in full leaf. It looks like the real deal. It looks really promising, like it might have fruit. Because you're never going to find fruit unless the fig tree is in full leaf. He goes. He doesn't find figs. Mark tells us he shouldn't have expected to find figs because it wasn't seasoned. He curses the tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And we go, wow. And that's 12 through 14. Now, on the other side of the fig tree, what do we have? Jesus on Monday morning going back to where? The temple. So you see what's going on here? There's a connection that Mark is pointing us to that says what's going on with the fig tree has something to do with what's going on with the temple. What was going on with the fig tree? There wasn't fruit there. What's going on with the temple? There's not fruit there. And we'll talk about what, what does it all mean. That the tree looked promising. It was in full leaf. It looked like the real deal. Jesus is hungry, looking for sustenance, can't find it there. He's saying the the temple is just like that tree. It's in full leaf. There's all kinds of religious practices going on. Man, were they slaughtering a lot of lambs that Passover. There was temple taxes being paid according to the law in Exodus 30. There was a lot of worship and gathering together. It looked like the real deal. And Jesus says people are going to the temple hungry to have their souls fed and they can't find it because there's no fruit. There's no fruit there. That's what's going on in this whole lesson of the fig tree. And so as you think about it, we're left with one of two conclusions. Either Jesus is having a really bad day and he loses his temper and he abuses his power for his own advantage. One of the writers say, why would Jesus do that? He could have just as easily used his power to grow figs, right? So you either say he's abused his power, or you say this, a fruitful life, or more importantly, a fruitless life is a big deal to God. Someone who says, I'm with you, God, I worship you, but there's no fruit. There's just kind of this leafiness about us. That's a big deal to God. And then as he comes in and he instructs us, what we have here is a word of judgment when he curses the tree. It's a word of judgment against fruitlessness. And there's a word of instruction about the purposes of his house. It's a word of mercy. It's a word of warning. So first then, this word of judgment. This word of judgment about fruitlessness. And what we understand here very clearly is Jesus is against that. He has come to overturn the tables of fruitless religion, this fruitless religion that blocks the very purposes of God. So when Jesus talks about the house of God being turned into a den of thieves or robbers, what we need to understand is what would go on then as people would practice and worship God during Passover. 
When you went to Passover, you understood two things. One, that you were required to bring a temple tax. This is to, to support the ministry of the temple. It was a half a shekel. The shekels were only found in the temple currency. The Roman currency was not in shekels. So you come to Jerusalem, you know that you've got to change your money. And guess what? That day, it was a pretty high exchange rate when you went to change your money into shekels. So that's going on. There's a little bit of extortion going on. The other thing that you need to do is you need to bring a sacrifice. If you were of means, you would bring the lamb. If you brought your own lamb from outside of Jerusalem, guess what? You walk into the temple courts, and the priest is checking out your lamb to see if it makes the code. Is this thing going to pass? And more times than not, guess what? It didn't. I mean, you looked over that lamb carefully. You didn't see a blemish, but, man, they had this uncanny ability to find blemishes with the sacrifices, and that meant you had to buy a lamb on the inside. And guess what? There's a lot of demand for those lambs on Passover, and the price was way up. So there is some big-time extortion going on where the religious leaders are actually abusing the people who've come to worship. So when we hear Den of Robbers, we understand that historically. That's going on in Jesus' day. But when Jesus quotes Jeremiah 7, when he brings up this whole theme of a Den of Robbers, we understand that there's even more going on. So check out Jeremiah 7. Because this is what Jesus has in mind as he's quoting from this very passage. Jeremiah 7, verse 5. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, that is the refugee, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? Whoa, all of a sudden we realize there is a whole nother level that was going on. And Jesus is trying to connect the dots for the people in his day, the religious leaders in his day, the worshipers in his day to say, you're just like those in Jeremiah's day. And who were they? They were people who oppressed the poor. They were unfaithful in their marriage relationships. They were violent people. They were idolaters. And and, and they had this understanding that you could do all those detestable things, but come in with your sacrifice and with your worship and then say, I'm safe. And this is a safe place because I'm doing the right thing here. And the right thing here will cancel all the wrong things I've done during the day. And Jesus comes in, he's overturning tables, and he's reminding the people in his day and in our day, it isn't safe to play games with God. He's not a safe God in that way, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing that he doesn't allow us to play spiritual charades. And that's what was going on big time in Jesus' day. And that's a question we have to ask ourselves individually and together as a church. Are we religious pretenders?
I mean, talk about pretenders. If you remember the, do you remember the story, Catch Me If You Can, of Frank Abagnale? This guy who was the con of cons, he conned his way into a law practice without ever studying law. He conned his way into uh, being the chief of an emergency room in a hospital without ever getting through med school. He conned his way into the cockpit of commercial airliners without ever knowing how to fly an airplane. This guy was the consummate pretender. And he was the best of the best in all of that. And some of us have figured out how to do that right here in the concept, in the construct of, of church and of religion. We know what to say. We know what the cues are. We know what the language is. We know what we're supposed to do. And we find ourselves falling right in step with this spiritual charade. There's some lessons that we need to learn here from the fig tree. The first lesson is you can't hide behind fig leaves. The first time you find the fig tree mentioned in the Bible is Genesis chapter 3. So Adam and Eve just sinned. They've broken ranks with God. They've completely disobeyed him. And now they once were naked and not ashamed. And now all of a sudden they're ashamed. They know they're naked. They know they're sinners. And what are they doing? They're plastering leaves all over themselves. And God sees right through it. He saw right through the fruitlessness of that tree, the fruitlessness of the people in his day, and he sees it through us. We may be fooling everybody else, but let us be clear, we're not fooling him. Here's a second lesson. This is an important one. Don't confuse foliage for fruit. Don't get confused into thinking they're the same thing. They're not the same thing. So let me illustrate. Is anybody here one of those kind of people? This, this is my dad. You, you like, you eat the whole apple, core and all. I mean, that's great for you. I'm sure you're healthier because of that. Thank you for that hand. I see that. Um, you know, I'm sure you think you're healthier because you do that. That's great. You keep eating the cores for the rest of us. We're happy for you. Here's something I've never seen, though. I've never seen somebody eat the whole strawberry. I, I'm sure somebody here does that because you think it's healthier, too. But I've never seen anybody do that. Once in a while, in you know, a bunch of prepared strawberries, a little piece of the leaf gets in. Maybe you've had a little taste of that too. It's very bitter. There's a, there's a reason people don't eat the leaf of a strawberry because it doesn't taste anything like the fruit and it ruins the sweet taste of the fruit. It's very important that we distinguish between the leaf, the foliage, and the fruit. There's a big difference between what goes on externally and what is going on internally in the heart. A third lesson. Jesus is hungry for fruit, not leaves, when it comes to our own lives. For a righteousness, a holiness in action. For a true loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. For a true love of our neighbor as ourself. And the fruit he's looking for is that which goes from the inside out. So when the Bible talks about this fruit, it it calls it the fruit of the Spirit. the, The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ that's now resident in our life. And as that fruit starts to manifest in our life, it's described as love and joy and peace and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. That's what he's looking for. 
And may I suggest the final lesson is, it's not just Jesus looking for that. There's a hungry world that's looking for that. Do you know anybody in your life that's looking for love like God gives it unconditionally? Uh, Do you know anybody whose life is so messed up, they're so anxious, they can't sleep, they're they're having to be medicated, just cope through life right now. They're looking for peace that Jesus says passes human understanding. Do you know anybody like that? Do you know anybody who's looking for kindness? They feel like life has been so hard. For goodness? Do you know anybody whose life is completely out of control? Addictions are ruining and ruling their life, and they would so like to be set free from that. They long for some self-control. Do you know anybody like that? There's a hungry world looking for this fruit that brings all the good things that we long for in life. So Jesus comes and he gives us this word of judgment. It's the word of judgment against the tree and against all fruitless religion. I'm going to turn that over. Then he comes and he brings us this wonderful word of instruction. It's a word of mercy that also has a implicit warning in it. And it, all, it has everything to do with where Jesus is standing when he starts talking about his house. Where Jesus is standing is in the court of the Gentiles. So picture, if you will, the outside court around the temple. It's big. It's about three football fields long. It's the place where anybody seeking God could go. They could meet him there and pray with him there. Inside of that court, only the Jewish women could go. Inside of that court, only the Jewish men could go. Inside of that court, there was a court for only the priests. Inside of that was the Holy of Holies, only the high priest. This was the one place where anybody could come and meet God. And he said, this house, quoting Isaiah 56, he says, this house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Here is the good word for you and me. If I look over this group right here, I'm guessing 99.9% of us would fall into the Gentile category. Who's a Gentile? The Bible talks about Gentiles, anybody who's not a Jew. So we're 99.9% Gentile. And Jesus is saying, I've got room for you. And the reason I'm cleaning house is because they've turned the meeting place where you can pray, the quiet place, into this noisy flea market where you can't even hear yourself think. And I am restoring my house so that you can meet me here. Everybody can meet me here. That's been God's plan all along. When he meets Abraham and calls him to himself, he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. The reason I'm going to bless you is that through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the entire world. In Isaiah 42, the prophet says to Israel, God's people, hey, I want you and I've set you apart and called you as my own people so that you'll be like this spotlight, this spotlight that shines brightly, this spotlight that that draws people's attention, that points people to me. I want you to be a light to the Gentiles. And at the end of the story in Revelation chapter 7, we see that there's this great multitude, too numerous to count, made up of every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, 
all worshiping around. It's God's plan all along. And the reason he's cleaning his house is because his house has lost its intended purpose of being a place for all people to meet God. And a house of prayer implies God's alive, that he hears us, that he wants us to talk to him, that we can have a relationship with him. And that's true for all of us. Scriptures are clear. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not die but have eternal life. And so this instruction is good news for us that Jesus cleans his house for us so that we can meet him and know him and know his father who made us and loves us. But there's a great warning as well. And the warning is this. God's people were meeting in God's place and they seemingly were doing worship together and yet their worship actually was an obstacle to the mission of God. It, it actually was doing the exact opposite of what God had intended. And so here we are, God's people in this place worshiping and we could be just as shocked as the religious leaders when Jesus overturns their tables, their practices, to realize that maybe we're blocking the purposes of God for all people, for all people. How would we do that? Well, I think we would do it with unloving attitudes and actions that somehow preclude a person from saying, I I could come here and meet God here an unloving attitude or action that we may not even realize is there. I was looking at a bag of mixed nuts today, and I pulled out a Brazil nut, and I remembered this week, growing up, what those were called. And I just went, hmm, and thought about that for a while. It's, it's stuff that we, we may not even be aware of. And Jesus said, I, I clean my house for you. Now let me clean your house for other people. And when we talk about the richness of community here, what's becoming clear in my mind and in my heart is it's so much more than your experience with a small group where you're growing in Christ, and that is so important. And we want you to experience that. But that, in a sense, is an individual experience that you have in community. What I want us to understand is the richness of community, this value that's so important, is is also to be a corporate value that says the richness of community is that we would have a little better representation of Madison's mosaic right here in this place. More importantly, that a little bit of Revelation chapter 7 and an increasing measure of Revelation chapter 7 where all peoples from all different kinds of backgrounds, whether it's ethnic or whether it's socioeconomic or whether it's educational or whether it's a disability, whatever it is, that there's a place for them here. And we find within our diversity this beautiful magnification of our unity in Christ. All these different people that come here worshiping together like no other place in the world because of Christ. And we remember Jesus cleaned his house that we can meet his father. And as we find religious hypocrisy in our life, 
as we find that somehow God's purpose is now that we're his temple, have fallen short, that we can be encouraged that just as he cleaned his house back in Jerusalem, he can clean this house today. And I don't know about you, but I know my house needs cleaning. Have you seen these ladies on TV, How Clean Is Your House? Have you seen this show? Oh, my word. If anybody here thinks your house is a mess, tune into this thing. You'll be encouraged. You cannot believe the messes that people live in. And these two ladies come in, and they clean it up. And there's obviously a lot of things going on. But one of the things that consisted at the end of the show, the people whose house have been cleaned, they feel so much better about life. Oh, man, do they feel better about life. And you know what? Jesus comes. And he comes inspecting our trees. He's looking for fruit. And he comes to the tables that we've set up that are actually getting in the way of his purposes through us. And he's turning them over. And we can be encouraged that he who cleaned his house for us will clean our house for other people. And I hope that encourages you, even if you find there's some tables that need rearranging. Even if you look through all the leaves and go, man, there are a whole lot of fig tree, figs on my tree. Be encouraged for who Jesus is and what he's done. Let's pray. What a great God you are. You knew what was in the temple. You knew what was not on the tree. You knew all about the charades being played in your day and in our day. And in the midst of pretense and people thinking they were safe, you came to show us a better way. And your son came and lived a perfect life that he might die for all of this. And you might do a great work and clean our house. And through us, Lord, clean others. And so, Lord, do your work. Do your work in our hearts. Do your work in our church. And thank you for your son, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.